Good morning again. It's been away for a couple of weeks. It feels a little funny and odd to be uh, here, but, um, but good. Good to be together. Good to see you all from this uh, space or place. I'm excited about what we're talking about this morning. Uh, we're kind of going to do a one-off thing and the next week uh, start a longer series. I'm excited about that too, but uh, let's stick with today. This morning's uh, teaching time together sermon is going to be kind of a one-off that I think may be appropriate for today with today being our uh, all-church picnic day, first time in three years, as Christy noted. Uh, glad for that, uh, especially uh, since COVID's kept us away, COVID's kept people isolated. Uh, that's still affecting some of us. Uh, so I think the scripture that we're looking at this morning uh, may help us and direct us and have a word for many of us. Uh, before we read, let's pray together. God, as we've sung and as we've uh, focused and as we've uh, given uh, our attention to upfront and to song lyrics, uh, we ask that you would continue to help us focus, be attentive to uh, not just a book and not just words, but to you and to your truth and to your presence, to your reality and to your grace among us. I need your help in slowing down. Maybe others do too. Help us in that regard. Open our eyes, warm our hearts, and stir our spirits through your word. I pray and ask uh, these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So the first verse before us this morning is from what scholars call the primeval history. Let's say that together, just for fun. Primeval history. And it's the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Very different than all of the rest of the scriptures. The primeval history tells these stories that serve as a foundation for everything that's going to come after them. They serve as a foundation for history, for the scriptures, for theology, for knowledge, for truth. All of those things in varieties of ways are built on these first 11 chapters of Genesis. So reading this morning to start with from chapter two of Genesis, verse 18, listen closely, this is the word of God. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And again, uh, Gladys and I actually didn't coordinate this morning, so I'm glad of, for the synergy there. Again, that sentence, that, uh, that verse. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, a helper suitable for him. And you probably know that chapter one of the book of Genesis, the first chapter of the Bible, tells the story of creation in a certain way, day by day by day by day, six days until finally on the seventh day, leaking over into chapter two of Genesis when God rests. But day after day after day, God creates in Genesis one, the first account or story or telling of creation. And each day after God creates, God looks at what God has done and says, good, that's good. Maybe I'm good, but good. 
until he gets to the end of the sixth day after creating humanity, humankind, people. And God says, very good, very good. And then beginning in verse four of chapter two of Genesis, the God-inspired scriptures tell about God's creating acts in a different way, a different but not contradictory contradictory way with the Genesis 2 account of creation focusing solely on humanity, just that little part of chapter 1, day 6, where we read that God created humanity in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. But the scriptures go into much greater detail in chapter 2 about humanity than they did in chapter 1, where God created in general terms. Now, God created man, Adam, what we call Adam. And then verse 18, it's not good for the man, the Adam, Adam, to be alone. And then God sort of goes through all of the animals as if God is looking among all of the animals that he has created for a suitable companion for the man, Adam, God had so creatively created all different kinds of animals, lions, tigers, bears, cows, sheep, horses, snakes, turtles, worms, birds, reptiles, amphibians, parakeets, hamsters, cats, and dogs. Not mentioned in the scriptures, but certainly included cats, dogs, parakeets, hamsters, dogs, who are what? man's best friend. <laughs> Quote, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found, even among the dogs. And so God caused the man to go into a deep sleep. This is the uh, sort of a divine amnesia or anesthesia, not amnesia. And the first ever surgery in this sort of ultra organ donation where God takes a rib not from the man's head, not from the man's foot, but from the man's side, close to his heart, and does this sort of organ total transplant and creates woman from man. And then God closes up the man, he stitches him close, surgery over, yes, done. And while the context of this passage obviously speaks to, in a foundational way, to marriage, to God's creating, ordering, and blessing, the idea and the institution and the covenant of marriage, there's an equally important or maybe also all-encompassing or foundational truth, the primeval history, to be found in this account in these verses and particularly verse 18. It is not good for man or any person to be alone. Everything is good on every day of creation. Everything that God created in chapter one of Genesis was good after every day of creating, God declares everything that he has created to be good. And when God creates humanity on the day six, he says, very good. And then we get to verse 18 of chapter two. And for the first time in all of creation, all of history, there is something now that's not very good. In fact, it's not good at all. Not good. Wow. It is not good for a person to be alone. And God addresses that not goodness by gifting to the first person another person to be for the first person a helper, a friend, company, a companion. That C-O-M comes from the Latin that means with. Someone who is with. 
And yes, particularly in that uh, case, initially a spouse. God, in God's grace, provides for humanity other people with whom to do life. God, in God's grace, provides for humanity others with whom to do life. Of course, being alone isn't always bad, isn't universally bad, maybe isn't bad at all in some ways. After all, Jesus very intentionally spent time alone. He went over and over to what scriptures call the desolate place, the lonely place, the quiet place, everywhere he went to pray, to rest, to reflect, and he did this regularly. And that can be good, that kind of aloneness even necessary. If a person cannot spend time, some time, alone, it's likely that he or she is running from something, maybe someone, maybe from themselves, maybe from God. So the Lord God says it's not good for a person to be perpetually alone, and this isn't just about being single or being married, in my understanding and perspective, though that may be the first meaning in this context, yes. But there's nothing in the scriptures to indicate that the truth or reality is not to be understood more broadly as well, which is what I've always done and what I'm going to do doing this morning. Because marriage isn't for everyone. Not everyone's called to be married. The scriptures and our experience are clear about that. But everyone is called into relationships with other people. And all of us having been made in the image of the relational God who has always existed and will always exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relating to God's self, one another, if you will, in this dance of love, as we talked about in our series on love this summer. So we are made in God's image, relationally, to be in relationship. And so it is not good for a person to be alone. And so God introduced to creation other people who sometimes fall under the category of family. And families of different sorts have always been important throughout human history and in the scriptures and family or families come in different forms. As we've seen in the scriptures, as we know in life, as we see in history, as has been our experience. Now fast forward to the New Testament to chapter 12 of the book of Romans, which is the theological, in some ways, practical magnum opus of the Apostle Paul and all of his letters, which, can, which uh, he wrote and, can, and the New Testament is full of. And over the course of the first 11 chapters in Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, his magnum opus, Paul very methodically takes his reader through this journey of the gospel and the kingdom of God and who God is and why God created and what humanity is, and about sin, and the separation of God, and about God's reconciling work in and through Jesus. And then he goes into this entangled deal of how do I get saved, and how is a person redeemed, and how is a person healed, and what's the relationship then between Jews and Gentiles and the different ways of coming to God and knowing God and being reconciled and redeemed to God. And Paul seemingly inadvertently ask these grand, super eternal kinds of questions that even he wrestles with how to answer. But his conclusion at the end of chapter 11 is that God is really gracious and magnificent. He's embracing and reconciling. He's better than we expect, better than we deserve in his grace. And so Paul ends chapter 11 with this doxological climax 
in which he says, no one can really understand the goodness, the greatness, the breadth of God's grace. He is glorious in every way. So to him be all glory and majesty and honor and power. And it's this great doxology of praise. And then in chapter 12, he transitions and says, and so how do we respond to that God who is like that, who has been that way with us? What's our response? What does that look like? And his conclusion is that we offer ourselves, all of ourselves in love to God and also to one another, to humanity, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our relatives, to our families, to strangers, to our enemies. And then he gets to verse 10 of chapter 12, where we read these words. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. All of which could have been a part of our big series on love this past summer, but we had so many other great passages in the scriptures to talk about and refer to and to dig into that we just never got to this one. But now here we are. The Greek word for love that occurs at the beginning of verse 9 is agapao, a verb, or agape, noun, which is by far the most commonly used of the several Greek words for love in the New Testament. It's almost always agapao. And we talked about, during our series on love, about what that means, about what agapao looks like. It's a love for others that's selfless, that's sacrificing, that gives, that wants the best for the other person, that has the other's best intent in mind, that seeks the well-being of the others. It's not just emotions or feelings, but it is action. It's the sort of love that God has for us, the sort of love that Jesus called his followers to have for one another and strangers and enemies. But in verse 10 of chapter 12 of Romans, there are two other words for love infrequently and even rarely used in the New Testament. The first of which is even obscured in this verse and as in most English translations of this verse. Verse 10 begins, be devoted to one another in love. And that be devoted is actually the verb form of one of those Greek words, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, pronunciation-wise in the Greek, but we know the city is Philadelphia, which means love of brothers and sisters. Brotherly love, brotherly kindness, fraternal kindness, affection, which is not a lesser form of love than agapao, but it's different in that who it's between. And then the word love at the end of verse 10 is still another Greek word and more rarely used in the scriptures for love, not agapao or Philadelphia, but philostorgoi or philostorgos from the base word storge, which refers to the mutual love of parents for their children and children for their parents and a husband for a wife, across family to family, for traditional family of various sorts. It is a tender kind of love. It is kindness. It is affection. Oh, interesting that Paul and the scriptures so rarely use those words, but Paul chooses them quite intentionally here. And so let me put those two Genesis and Romans together. It's not good to be alone, be devoted to one another, in brotherly love or kindness to one another in familial love or tenderness or affection. And that's what Paul wrote to the church. 
to the whole church, to everybody, not just like he does in Ephesians 5 where he dresses husbands and wives, employers and employees, children and parents, but here he's clearly writing to everyone, to all of you, not just to spouses, not just to children, not just to parents, not just to siblings, but he's writing to everyone. And he says to all of you who are in Christ, this is what it's like to be church. Those of you who are in Christ are called to be a family. You are called to be together, not alone, and you are called to be family. That is who we are. That is who we're called to be, which may not sound like good news to everyone. It may be good news for many of us, but depending on one's experience of family, that may not be all that attractive of an idea. But that is who we're called to be, to exemplify in our lives and to embody and to possess and to participate in the very best of familial types of relationships. So what might that look like? For starters, despite the familial language, it certainly does not point to a historically stereotypical American family, a.k.a. the Cleavers, right? There's nothing wrong or bad about being a homogenous church family, but most church families are probably going to look more like this or like this or like this, cheers, or like this, friends, or like this, modern family, or like this, this is us, this is us, this could be us. But whatever a church looks like, what matters most is first that they are together. What matters most is that people, human beings, made in God's image, loved by God, who through Christ abide, are not alone. They are not walking alone. They're not following Jesus alone. They're not in isolation. I've said many times that life is not a solo event. It was never intended to be. Just go back to Genesis 2. And nor is certainly following Jesus being church. There are no lone ranger Christians. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work out well that way. It was never intended to be. Regardless of one's marital status, regardless of who one lives with or doesn't live with, God calls all of his people into relationships and communities with other people who are also trying to follow Jesus. And when God's people connect with one another, and live with one another, dwell with one another in deep and abiding relationships, things usually go better than otherwise. Psalm 133 begins, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. In communities, in relationships, when we are not doing life alone, we learn from each other. We teach each other. We serve one another. We bless one another. That phrase, one another, occurs 100 times in the New Testament. 100 times exactly. As simply people, and even more so as the people of God and as the body of Christ, we're called to accept one another. Paul wrote to the Romans, forgive one another, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, seek good for one another, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, confess our sins to one another, James, speak the truth to one another, Paul and Ephesians, pray for one another, 
James, be hospitable to one another. And over and over and over and over and over again, the New Testament is just replete with this one anotherness. The one another that uh, is most common of all of those is love. Love one another. So being a family is more than just not being alone. It is more than just living in the same home. It is more than sharing genetic material or being bound together by legal guardianships or marriage licenses or adoption papers or whatever. That's not at all what Paul is talking about, but instead has this grander view of God's plan for a togetherness, a not aloneness, and a specific way of being together. And sometimes that can be hard. Because look around. This is what you get in this family. People regularly church shop and look for a better church, the ideal church, a really great church, a church where all the people are as we want them to be. But don't look for the perfect church because as soon as you show up, it will no longer be perfect. (laughs) You'll ruin it for everyone else. But instead, look around and go, ah, God's called me to be in relationship with these sometimes difficult people. And that's not an all bad thing because, it's, because when we're together with one another like this, then we get to practice the hard parts of the one anotherness, which is the only way we grow. You don't grow by reading about love. You don't grow by reading about compassion. You don't grow by bearing with one another in theory. You don't grow by being trying to be patient or reading about patience. You don't grow in your ability to tolerate and overcome annoying people by living alone in a cave or at that perfect church. Similarly, it's tough to do this by live stream. It's tough to be in a relationship and to allow God to grow when we're only one way looking at a screen. God calls us to give and take God calls us to love and be loved. God calls us to serve and be served. God calls us to be blessed and to be a blessing for others. That's what a healthy family looks like. And no one's saying it's easy. No one's saying the people around you are easy. When I think about my own family, about the members of my family who have had vastly different ideas about God and the spiritual world. When I think of the members of my family who are just downright annoying, (laughs) the ones who have been in jail, the ones who seem to ask for things more than they want to give, the challenges, it's in those relationships that we learn to love. It's in those relationships that we learn to, as Paul said, bear with one another. It's in those relationships that we become more patient people. Not that I'm a patient person, but it's in those relationships that we grow. This week I uh, spoke with more than one person whose family members were absolutely are to them intolerable. Someone asked me, what do I do with this situation this week? 
what do I do with this person? I listened and I listened and I prayed and I thought, and then I said, I think you need to forgive them. And the person's response was, I can't. I can't. And the only way to life in Christ and to abundance, however, is to forgive. And the only way you'll get over your anger and the only way that you'll move beyond the weight that you bear is to forgive, which we get to do when we're in a relationship and not when we're all alone in a cave. So COVID has been tough in a lot of ways for a lot of people, not for everyone, for some people, not so hard. But for others, it's left them alone in their homes, alone and away from church, alone from people, alone in relationships. Kids that Kristen prayed for, alone and away from their schoolmates, alone in their homes by themselves. And that's been hard on us as people because God said it's not good to be alone. And so the church gets to be a place where we call people out of isolation or we go to people who don't have a choice about their isolation. And we pray for people and we love people and we invite people and we ourselves get together with people. I had other conversations this week with people who absolutely don't want to get together with other people. Christians who refrain from it, who shy away, who say, no thanks, not me. It's not my thing right now. I think that's to our own demise. But God invites us into a family whether we feel like we need it or not. Because though we may not feel like we need family, by engaging in family, we get to be and have the joy of being the family that maybe others need for a season. A number of years ago when uh, our family's life, our nuclear family, Karen and the four kids, was just uh, super high stressful and none of the kids were driving yet and we were trying to figure out how to get everyone around to school and activities and sports and church and all those other things, someone in the congregation said to me, hey, listen, your life's tough right now. But you let me know any time I can drive any of your kids anywhere, and I'm there. What a gift. What an offer. That person has recently stopped driving. Just got to that age. And that person let others in the congregation know. Seven people have volunteered to drive that person around. How cool is that? Is that family or what? It's just driving, but it's beautiful. I got to see this uh, week in our congregation a variety of examples of people being family, of being devoted to one another and brotherly love. I thought about I've got a brother named Mark. 
and both of Mark's parents killed themselves at different times when he was young. He had one sibling who was institutionalized, and Mark was kind of alone. And my mom said, you're a part of our family now. The church needs to be that kind of family for people who don't have families, to love them familially, if I can make up that word, to continually invite people, whether they want to come or not, into the relationships that heal, the relationships that convey Jesus, the relationships that embody Jesus. That's why we're doing this table gatherings thing. That's why we're doing a picnic. Burgers, great. Hot dogs, great, fine. But the real goal is to be together and to connect and to encourage and to love and to practice loving and to meet new people to love and who will love us. Church picnic. Not about the hot dogs, though thank you for those who are preparing and fixing those. We will enjoy them. Last story. His name was Dennis. He'd always been around the church at least uh, from the time I could remember, from the time I was 16, 17, and 18, Dennis had lived his entire life in a wheelchair due to birth defects, couldn't speak clearly. He tried, he could understand, but it was very difficult for him to speak and even more difficult for people to understand him. He could not do anything for himself, but somehow got connected with the church that I was a part of. And then there was a man named Ed, Ed was about as on top of the world as a person could be, at least in the... Did I, did I miss something? Oh, right. Wrong, wrong slide, a different Ed. I'm wondering what's going on. Wrong slide. So that's Cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. How many of us have a Cousin Eddie in our families? Come on, be honest. How many of you have a cousin, Eddie, in your family? All right. Different Ed. Sorry, uh, up on the slides. Thanks for that. Pretty close. <laughs> I forgot to tell you about the other Ed. Dennis Jones always uh, spent his entire life in a wheelchair, uh, had, um, had none of the world's resources, none of the gifts, none of the beauty, none of the, couldn't speak. And then there was Ed, who had everything. And every Sunday, Ed would help Dennis get into the sanctuary, would sit next to him, would wipe his lip, would pick up, would wipe the drool, would interpret as best he could what he needed to say, would take Dennis to the restroom when Dennis indicated he needed to go, would help him through that whole process, bring him back, get him home to the facility or institution where he lived. That is family. That is what Paul is talking about. There's no blood relation. There's no marriage involved. Not only would it not be good for Dennis to be alone, but it would be impossible for him to live. A child made in the image of God to even have life apart from being invited into a family 
where he would where people would be devoted to one another in brotherly love. May we, as we continue to grow, strive, learn, seek, do our value stuff, put a new roof on, paint the building, go about being church. May we be a people who are devoted to one another, look around you in brotherly love. And in that, may God be glorified and we will be satisfied. Let's pray. Help us, God, to love like you did, love like you do, love like Jesus modeled. We thank you that you have put into our lives, you do, you have, and you will, people who can sharpen us, people who can care for us, people who can encourage us, people who can help us get on or stay on the right road to recover from pain, hurt, disaster, tragedy, and help us to be those people toward others, inside and out, heart and soul, mind and will. Empower us through your spirit, and in all these things, bring about your reign, your dominion on earth, our earth, this place, our space, just like it is in heaven. To that we look forward. Amen.